Hey guys, Matthew Delaney. Welcome to the first episode, episode number one of 5x5. If you're a new listener, if you want to figure out what this is all about, if you want to figure out how do I get this free CME that people keep talking about, if you want to know who we are and why we're doing this, go take a listen to episode zero. That'll set you up with all of the how-tos, everything you need to know to enjoy this show now and in the months going forward. We've got a great lineup this month. We're going to talk about diverticulitis. We're going to talk about prescription drug monitoring programs and hopefully figure out why I can never remember my password. We'll talk about anticoagulation. What about the patient who's on warfarin and comes in and has a minor bump to their head? What are we supposed to do? There's a new drug that people are going to be pushing down our throats for flu. Is it worth the hype? And then we're going to close out with a little talk about marijuana. So let's get down to it. Five papers, five minutes each. Five by five, episode one. Here we go. All right, first step, we've got a look at diverticulitis. And so the paper here is a systematic review and meta-analysis of outpatient treatment for acute diverticulitis. And this was by Vandigic et al. And it came out in the International Journal of Colorectal Disease, 2018. It came out in March. The background here is that diverticulitis is a really big player in terms of things that go on in someone's abdomen that lead them to seek medical care. And Typically, when we talk about diverticulitis, this is a disease of Western society. The food we eat, the lifestyles we live in Western society kind of set us up for this. If you look at cases of diverticulitis, about 90% of cases of diverticulitis are going to be colonic, and it's going to be left-sided. In terms of disease severity, if you look at patients who present emergently with diverticulitis, about a third are going to have complicated disease during the initial presentation. So they're going to have a fistula, they're going to have an abscess or a perforation, or they're going to be septic. But about two-thirds of patients are going to present with non-complicated diverticulitis. The traditional teaching has been that, well, these patients need to be put in the hospital, they need to be put on antibiotics, they need to be made NPO. And we've had studies recently that have kind of questioned the efficacy of this aggressive approach with putting them in the hospital. So that's where this study really fits in. So this is a systematic review and meta-analysis. And they looked at 19 different studies for over 2,300 patients. And these were outpatients that were assessed first on the outpatient side, and then they kind of followed how they did. And these were all adult patients, Western diets, Western society with left-sided diverticulitis, which is basically what we're all going to see when a patient presents with diverticulitis. The methods are a little messy because you're pulling in 19 different studies. And so in terms of making the diagnosis, all but one of the studies, so 18 of 19, used CT scan to confirm the diagnosis. Up front, that's, that's okay, I think. A lot of us have seen patients, and especially in the ambulatory setting, it's very common to see a patient say, hey, this seems like diverticulitis, and I'm just going to diagnose you clinically. But the patients in this study, again, all but one study, used a CT to confirm the diagnosis. And the authors tried to pull out you know, the patients who did outpatient management, which was typically going to be antibiotics by mouth, a liquid diet for a couple of days, and then some follow-up clinic visits versus those who were put in the hospital given IV antibiotics, same kind of diet, and then discharged for follow-up. And they looked at a couple of different outcomes. They looked at, did you have to be readmitted? Did you need an emergent surgery? Did you need somebody to do an emergent drainage, like an IR percutaneous drainage? And then they looked at total healthcare costs and broke down these outcomes between patients who were managed on an outpatient basis, those who are managed on an inpatient basis. The first outcome was readmissions. So if you are managed initially, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, what's the rate of patients who have to show back up to have another round of treatment? 
And overall, the pooled incidence rate for readmission across all the studies was only 7%. So out of the gate, 93% of patients who have diverticulitis are going to do totally fine with whatever you do first. It gets interesting when you break down the rate of readmission between the patients who are treated as outpatients and those treated as inpatients. And really, when you looked at the studies that were included in this big systematic review, only two of the studies had control groups. And so if you look at those two studies, what they found was that in patients who are managed as an outpatient, the rate of readmission was between 4.5 and 6.3%, so a little under that 7% pooled incidence. If you look at patients who are hospitalized, the rate of readmission was about 6.1%. So outpatient 6.3, inpatient is 6.1, which basically tells us that there is essentially no evidence to suggest that putting a patient with uncomplicated diverticulitis in the hospital is going to reduce the chance that they have to be readmitted. You step back and say, hey, why were patients coming back to the hospital? Why were they being readmitted? The overwhelming most common reason was that they had PO intolerance. Hey, I feel bad. I can't tolerate oral intake. So readmission rate was essentially the same between outpatients and inpatients. The other outcomes are similarly reassuring. So the rate of emergency surgery is 0.2%, and the rate of patients who needed emergent percutaneous drainage was 0.2%. There were no deaths reported across any of these 18 studies. And the final outcome when we look at cost savings was that doing the outpatient management versus the inpatient management saved anywhere between 40 to 82%. So Clearly, there's a cost benefit to the system and likely the patient if you treat him as an outpatient first. Overall, I think this is a really cool study. So my takeaways for this is that, number one, when we look at a patient and say, you have diverticulitis, you're going to do fine. We're not lying to them. You're probably not going to need a surgery. You're probably not going to need a drainage, and you're almost certainly not going to die. And the second is that if we have a patient with left-sided, acute, uncomplicated diverticulitis, I think this paper strongly argues that doing outpatient management first is both safe and effective. Next up, we've got effect of automated prescription drug monitoring program queries on emergency department opioid prescribing by Sun et al. And this came out March 2018 in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. The background here is the obvious issue with opioids. We have a huge opioid problem in this country I don't think on the front lines in the emergency department, in the urgent care, in the clinic that we necessarily started this, but the problem is here. And the solution that's been proposed, or one of the many solutions, is these prescription drug monitoring programs. And these are really popular. 49 out of 50 states have them. 10 states require that before you write a prescription, you have to access this system. And I've worked in a couple of states, and I find these systems to be super clunky, not super effective, at least for me. You know, you log in, I forget the password. I can't get accurate data. It doesn't cross state lines. But despite these limitations, the government has really bought in and states have really bought in that this is a way to solve the opioid problem or one of the tools we can use. This study comes out of Washington State, and it's an interesting design. So in 2014, they started an automated query. So you would kind of, patients would log into the ED and automatically their prescription drug monitoring report would be generated. And they noted that before they started this in 2014, they had really low rates of use. Only about 4 to 5% of providers were using this. And they noticed that after the study period, when it was automated, that 71% of folks were using it. And so they said, awesome, now people are using this. Let's see what happens in terms of prescriptions. So the primary outcome was the number of outpatient prescriptions for Schedule 2 or 3 opioids within one day of the ED visit. 
And this is essentially everything. Codeine, fentanyl, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, meperidine, methadone, morphine, opium, really all the major players in terms of opioids. And secondarily, they look to see what happened to the amount of morphine milligram equivalents prescribed. And basically, this is getting at the fact that a prescription for oxycodone is not necessarily the same as a prescription for hydrocodone. So this morphine milligram equivalence pops up a lot, MME, and it's just the kind of total amount of opioid prescribed. In terms of data, they looked at Medicaid beneficiaries. And this is a good study group to pick because if you look at the previous data, patients who are Medicaid beneficiaries have higher risk of opioid overdoses. And the rate's almost six times the rate that we see in patients who are not Medicaid beneficiaries. And they, they didn't include any cancer patients. They didn't include children. And if you were a hospice patient or in a nursing home, you weren't included either. And so this is kind of who we see. These are Medicaid beneficiaries walking around, coming into emergency departments with a complaint of pain. Over the study period, they got about 1.1 million different ED visits. This is a pretty good data set. So how did this work? Did the implementation or kind of the mandate that you use this prescription drug monitoring program really change anything? No, it didn't really change anything in any positive way at all. So the primary outcome in terms of the percentage of patients who came to an ED who received a prescription for any opioid, there was statistically no difference. So before, 17.5% of visits involved prescription for an opioid. After, 18.2, statistically the same. Even less difference in terms of the total dispensed morphine milligram equivalents. It was a 111.7 before, 110 after. So exactly the same. One of the things they did is they tried to pull out high-risk criteria. So these are patients who have more than three prescribers in the past 12 months, more than four prescriptions for controlled substances in the past 12 months, overlapping prescriptions, prescriptions for benzos. And these are things I would say, yeah, that seems like a risky patient. That's somebody who I think the PDMP may help because I can access the system. I can look and see, all right, you've been getting a lot of prescriptions or you've had a lot of different prescribers. But yet again, there's really no difference. So if you look at the patients that they saw in this study, Beforehand, 19.3% of patients who got an opioid prescription had some high-risk criteria. After the system gets rolled out, 20% of patients with high-risk criteria still got a prescription for opioids. So what about the multiple prescriber? That's what the PDMP really solves. That fixes this. No. In fact, patients who had greater than three prescribers in 12 months, beforehand, 11% of patients who got an opioid prescription had more than three prescribers. And this is the kind of doctor shopping we worry about. The PDMP... After it was implemented, 12.6% of patients. So actually, more patients with high-risk criteria were getting opioid prescriptions after the PDMP was rolled out. A final kind of crazy piece of data they uncovered was that if you looked at patients with a complaint of pain who didn't have any of these kind of high-risk opioid use red flags, a higher portion of these patients got opioid prescriptions after the PDMP was rolled out. And it's not necessarily clear why, other than maybe providers looked at the PDMP and said, hey, I don't see any red flags, so I'm more willing to give you opioids here. So this is a decently well-done study. So they state implemented a PDMP. They saw really widespread use from 4 to 71%. And what they found was that prescribing behavior, the number of prescriptions given, the total amount of morphine equivalents given, didn't change. For me on a personal level, I still use the PDMP. I think it, for me, helps identify these high-risk red flag criteria. And, and I do feel that it can guide my prescribing patterns. From a systems level, 
I think we really need to pause before we pour more and more money into these systems or mandate that we use these systems because here's a decently well done study looking at a bunch of different patients that said that implementing these systems, which can be costly, time consuming, be a hassle for us as providers, has not been shown to have any positive outcome in terms of helping us fight off this opioid epidemic. Next up, we've got the incidence of intracranial bleeding in anticoagulated patients with minor head injury, a systematic review of meta-analysis perspective studies. And this is by Welsher et al. in the British Journal of Hematology, October 2018. And this is an interesting slash kind of scary paper. And these guys looked at what happens to anticoagulated patients with minor head injuries. This is a patient population we see a ton of. So in this study, you had to be anticoagulated, you had to have a minor head injury, and these were really minor mechanisms. And 50% of these patients just had a simple fall from standing, and you had to have a Glasgow coma score of 15. The authors looked at five studies, which included about 4,080 anticoagulated patients. And again, everybody looked fine initially or had a GCS of 15. And all of these were prospective studies. So patients show up to an emergency department with a head injury. In terms of the anticoagulants they were taking, 98 plus percent of the patients were taking vitamin K antagonists, with warfarin being the most common, and the rest were taking either direct oral anticoagulants or low molecular weight heparin. So really this is looking at patients on warfarin, what happens with a minor head injury. Like with most meta-analyses, the methods are a little bit messy and variable. So not all of the studies required the doctor to get a head CT. And some of the studies they said you have to do it, and some they said, hey, we'll let the doctor decide kind of based on the clinical impression. The biggest study that was included, which is Smits et al., and that looked at 3,100 of the patients. Only 68% of the patients got a CT scan initially in the emergency department. So patients walk in, these studies kind of left it up in the air in terms of do you need a CT scan or do you kind of go off what the provider thinks? Similarly, the follow-up was variable. So in some of these studies that were included, the patients were admitted, they were watched for 24 hours and got a repeat scan. Some of the studies, they would call the patients in 7 or 14 days. And some of them had record reviews. So kind of the initial workup, there's a lot of variety between the studies. And the follow-up, there's a lot of variety between the studies. The main outcome they looked for was the rate of intracranial hemorrhage. And across the studies, it ranged from 5% to 13.8% for a pooled range of 8.9%. Total, this was 209 different patients. And again, this kind of scary to me. These are patients who are walking in with a high GCS or a normal GCS who have an intracranial hemorrhage. If you look at the 209 who had a bleed, 189 were diagnosed initially. And that is somewhat reassuring because I've got you in front of me. I've got a chance to make the diagnosis. And 20 were diagnosed during follow-up. In terms of how these patients who bled did, we don't have great information. The authors made the argument, which holds a little bit of weight, that it doesn't matter how the patients do because any type of bleed on an anticoagulant is significant. Because if you are on an anticoagulant and you have a bleed, you likely need to hold the anticoagulation and probably need a follow-up CT. And that makes sense to me. I mean, patients aren't on anticoagulants for no reason, so they have an underlying medical condition that we need to think about. So that's significant. I need to know if I can safely stop your anticoagulant. That's going to be different. If you have AFib, I probably can. If you have a mechanical aortic valve, I probably shouldn't or can't stop your anticoagulation for any real length of time. 
in the follow-up CT. Yeah, I mean, if you're anticoagulated and you're bleeding, we probably do need to get follow-up CTs. And so they don't report severity, resultant disability, or death. But I think that there's a decent argument to be made that if one in 10 patients comes in and has a head bleed and they're on anticoagulants, that we need to know that. The takeaway here for me is that there really is no such thing as a minor head injury in a patient who's on systemic anticoagulants. Again, the rate of bleed is probably about one in 10. We have very limited data from this study in terms of what are the direct oral anticoagulants do in terms of risk. There's probably an elevated risk at baseline. There are a couple of smaller studies out saying, hey, maybe it's safer than warfarin or the other vitamin K antagonists. But for me, if you're taking any type of systemic anticoagulant and you have any report of head injury, in the face of this study, I have a hard time justifying why I wouldn't get imaging emergently to make sure you're not bleeding into your head. We're unfortunately still in the bowels of flu season, so this next one I think is pertinent. This is Biloxivir Marboxyl for Uncomplicated Influenza in Adults and Adolescents. This is by Hayden et al. in New England Journal of Medicine in September of 2018. And this is a drug company-sponsored study looking at this new agent, Biloxivir Marboxyl, which is being pushed out as a new one-time treatment for the flu. So it's better. It must be better because you only have to take it once compared to Oseltamivir where you have to take it twice a day for five days usually. And what they want to do with this is, number one, see if this drug works, and number two, compare it to the current competition, Oseltamivir. This is Tamiflu in the U.S. So first off, does your drug work? And then second off, does your drug work better than what's currently being prescribed? They did two-part study, and to get into either part, you had to be between the ages of 12 and 64, and you had to have influenza-type symptoms, so fever greater than 38 degrees Celsius, plus one systemic symptom, plus one respiratory symptom. Your symptoms had to be of moderate severity, and you have to have had these symptoms for less than 48 hours. That sounds like flu to me. Interestingly, in the first part, you had to have a positive rapid antigen test for flu, but in the second part, you didn't need any testing. It was kind of a clinical inclusion criteria. Yep, you seem like you meet the criteria, we can put you in the study. So for the first part of the study, you got either 10 milligrams of Biloxivir, 20 milligrams, 40 milligrams, or you got a placebo. And what they found was that when you compared the Biloxivir to placebo, it probably works better. They looked at a bunch of different outcomes, but the big one was median time to alleviation of symptoms. And so if you got Biloxivir, your median time to alleviation of symptoms was 54 hours. And if you got a placebo, your median time was 77 hours. So you shave about a day off your symptoms if you take Biloxivir. So they took that and then moved on and said, it must work. So now we're going to do this next phase. And this is about 1,000 patients. And these were randomized to either get Biloxivir, Oseltamivir, or to get a placebo. And what they found in this study is that if you took Biloxivir, you got better in about 53.7 hours compared to 80.2 hours if you took a placebo for a median difference of about 26.5 hours. Because this is a study on Biloxivir, they really buried how the patients with Oseltamivir did, but they did about the same. So if you take this new antiviral, or if you take the old antiviral, you're going to get better in about a day. Patients who saw greater benefit were typically adolescents, so anybody under the age of 18 got better about 38.6 hours sooner. And then also, if you got the medicine within the first 24 hours of symptoms, you got better with a median difference of about 32.8 hours. So the younger you are, the earlier you start, the better it's going to be. But again, 
Biloxivir and Oseltamivir perform similarly in terms of improvement of symptoms. They looked at median improvement of symptoms. They also looked at how long did it take you to get totally back to normal, and it was a long time. So if you took one of the antivirals, you got totally better in 129.2 hours compared to 168.8 if you took a placebo. So takeaway there is that if you have the flu, you're going to be sick for a while. In terms of adverse events, they really kind of spin it here. They say, hey, you're more likely to be nauseous if you take oseltamivir. 16% of patients who took that became nauseous versus 8% bloxivir and 4% placebo. But in terms of vomiting, the rate was the same. Patients who took bloxivir had higher rates of diarrhea. We saw it in 11% of patients versus 7% with oseltamivir. So really, the adverse events are kind of a wash. The authors, because they're essentially working for the makers of Biloxivir, take this and try to spin it and say, well, there are a couple things that are better about Biloxivir. Number one, it's a one-time dosing. I don't know if that's better. It doesn't mean it's more effective. They said that you have a greater reduction in viral load if you take Biloxivir compared to Oseltamivir compared to placebo. Again, that is possibly true, but doesn't necessarily correlate. And in this study does not correlate to an improvement in symptomatology. And similarly, they say, hey, your fever is going to go away sooner, so it must be better. But again, when you look and ask the patients, are you actually feeling better? This medicine is not more effective than the current medicines that we have. A couple of potential downsides. One of the big ones is cost. So if you look on goodrx.com, the cost of one dose of Biloxifer is going to be $160. And that's going to depend on what kind of insurance you have, where you live, Oseltamivir you can get now for about 50 bucks. So this is a more expensive version of a medicine that probably works about the same. Another limitation is that about 10% of the patients who took baloxivir showed signs of viral mutation. We don't really know how bad that could be potentially, but when we talk about influenza, we talk about the risk of pandemics, I think viral mutation is something we need to think about before we just start throwing this medication out there. And finally, we need some real-world data. So in this second part of the study, a third of the patients that were enrolled ended up not having influenza. So that's a lot of patients. If this is a blockbuster drug like it probably will become, this study shows that we're really bad clinically at picking out the patients who actually have influenza who would actually potentially benefit. So we put this paper in here because this is a drug with a lot of money behind it, a lot of momentum behind it. You're going to hear about this. You may meet some nice drug reps who bring you some nice snacks and tell you this drug works better than the current options. But this study tells us that, yeah, if you take some medication for the flu, whether it's oseltamivir or baloxivir, you're probably going to get better about a day sooner than you would if you did nothing and just watch Netflix all day. But you've got to balance that with the fact that you're more likely to throw up, you're more likely to be nauseous, and you're more likely to have some diarrhea. We're going to wrap up today with a little talk about marijuana. So JAMA Internal Medicine, May 2018. This is the Association of Medical and Adult Use Marijuana Laws with Opioid Prescribing for Medicaid Enrollees. And this is by Wynn et al. The background here is kind of looking at what happens when states legalize marijuana in some form or fashion. And this used CMS data from 2011 to 2016. So looking at Medicaid patients. And we talked about this earlier. These patients have higher rates of opioid use, higher rates of opioid abuse, higher rates of opioid death, and they also have higher rates of chronic pain. And the authors here 
kind of speculated, hey, in states where you can get marijuana, what does that do in terms of how these patients use opioids? In the U.S. and between 2011 and 2016, there are really kind of two ways to get marijuana if you're an adult. There are states that have adult use. And so during this study period, there were only four states that have adult use. And that's just, you're over 21, you can go into a dispensary or a store and buy marijuana. The other way to get marijuana during this time period was medical marijuana. And so there were eight states, and typically this legislation would say you can get this for chronic medical conditions, chronic pain, intractable pain, severe pain. And it's good to know that in all of the states that had adult use marijuana, they also had medical use marijuana. So you can get it through a prescription. You can just go in and buy it depending on where you live. What the authors found was that in states that had medical marijuana laws, when they implemented these laws, the rate of opioid prescribing went down by 5.88%. And broken down by the states, so Delaware, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Hampshire, all saw lower rates of opioid prescribing. Illinois, New Hampshire had medical marijuana laws, but didn't really calculate. The data wasn't clear in terms of what happened. There were two states where there was no reported drop in the percentage of opioids that were prescribed, so Connecticut and Maryland. In Connecticut, one of the interesting things about their legislation was that they didn't include painful conditions. And so that kind of mucks it up a little bit because the typically you'd be on an opioid for a painful condition, so there would be no way for a patient in Connecticut to go to the doctor, get a prescription for marijuana to kind of substitute in for their opioid prescription. In Maryland, we didn't see a drop either. They passed the law legalizing medical marijuana in 2014, but they didn't really get a system for distribution set up until 2016. So the data is kind of limited because they really only came online in reality at the end of that study period. Looking at states that implemented adult use marijuana laws. So they had medical marijuana laws and then said, now adults can buy it. The rate of opioid prescription was down 6.38%. So Colorado, Alaska, Oregon saw significant drops. And Washington State saw a moderate drop. It's interesting that they saw a greater percentage drop compared to states that implemented medical marijuana laws because all of the states that implemented adult use already had medical marijuana laws on the books. So that kind of suggests that, hey, if you just open marijuana up to the adult public, fewer patients are going to get opioid prescriptions. They also found that in states that legalized marijuana, there was about a 9 to 10% drop in the rate of non-opioid pain medications. So clearly, whether it's adult use or medical, less prescriptions are going out for any type of pain medication. This study didn't look at a reduction in overdoses. There are previous studies that are small, kind of limited, that show that, yeah, in states that legalize adult use and medical use, you actually see the rates of overdose go down. In Colorado, there's thought to be 0.7 fewer deaths per month from opioid overdoses just after the implementation of the adult use legislation. So I think this is a really interesting, large, well-done study that gives us at least a direction going forward. So does this mean that me medical marijuana is a great thing for society? No, we, we don't have great science to say what marijuana can or can't do in terms of medicine. And this also doesn't tell us that adult use marijuana is overall a great thing for society. But I think what this tells us is that there's a very clear association between making medical marijuana and adult use marijuana available and lowering rates of opioid prescribing. And as we talked about to start the show, in this era where we're really looking from all angles at how do we reduce the use of opioids, how do we do some harm reduction, risk reduction for these patients, this may be a valuable tool. Again, this shows an association with decreased prescription rates, whereas things like the prescription drug monitoring program don't really show this benefit. So obviously this is a hot topic, but this is a big paper in a big, 
very public journal that I think gives us at least some good data to continue this discussion going forward. All right, guys, that's it for this month. Five papers, five minutes each. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, we'll be back next month. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers. Go to your podcast app if you're on iTunes. Go and give us a five-star review so other folks can find the show. If you want to claim the free CME that's sponsored by the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, look on the link for the show description on your podcast app, and it's courses.cme.uab.edu, and click on the link that says 5 by 5 you got to create a login, but after that, you just answer a few simple questions. You can see all the show notes, and you can claim your free CME credit. If you have any questions, concerns, feedback, or things you want to hear about in upcoming months, shoot me an email. It's mdelaney at uabmc.edu. We'll be back next month.